Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. Every moment of friction in the consumer journey represents a revenue risk to your organization. Trick is knowing what those frictions are and knowing which ones to focus on to drive the greatest financial impact to your bottom line. Paula Courtney, president and CEO of the Verde Group, uses their customer dissatisfaction research to ID and quantify those opportunities and remove costly frictions from your consumer experience. Lauren and I dug in with Paula on their methodologies and use cases from their work. So Paula, thank you so much for bringing your almost 20 years of experience, really focused on measuring and designing customer experiences that drive financial impact to your clients to the podcast. We really appreciate you coming on. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much, Peter, for inviting me to your podcast. Of course. As you know, many of our listeners are on the journey of connecting with and selling directly to consumers. Some of them for the first time in their company's history, some are, are further along on that journey. But I, with, with, that, with that in mind, I'd love to start sort of with the current state of the consumer mindset, as you've seen it in your research and engagements around you know, how they connect up with brands. You know, what are the experience expectations that you're seeing that should be top of mind for brands today? So I think one of the first things I'd like to say is that whatever your business is, make it easy for customers to buy from you. So we call it be shoppable. And and what that means is have your products available. So that's, I know that sounds like crazy, but this is one of the most important or most significant problems that consumers experience, particularly during the pandemic and even post-pandemic is this whole notion that, you know, the product that you're looking for is not available. Or if you're a multi-channel retailer uh, or you sell through multiple channels that it's available in one channel, not available in another. And then that's further you know, complicated when your pricing on different products is different. So you may want to encourage a, a more digital consumer. So you may offer discounts if they buy online versus in store. But that actually, that lack of price transparency creates confusion and creates friction for customers. So, so being seamless, uh, being really omni-channel, and what does that mean? I mean, you're a multi. If you're a multi-channel supplier, if you're a multi-channel retailer, make it seem as though no matter how customers buy from you, it's a very seamless and consistent experience, both in pricing and product availability. Easier said than done, but the shopability is is definitely you know. Are you easy to buy from? And then the second most important factor, and this is even when we interviewed customers or consumers, about 10,000 in the US last year, we asked them, what creates wow? Like, what would you say is an exceptional experience, one that truly surprised you, delighted you, memorable? And what's really shocking is that the answer to that question is, is really not earth shattering. It's do you have great customer support? So when I have a problem, is it easy for me to get recovery from you? I think that is, you know, overwhelming the, the number one most difficult thing for, for organizations to do is provide seamless customer support. But that's all that customers want. That creates delight and surprise is to be hassle-free 
in how you buy and when you require support for a problem that may, may occur in your purchase journey. And so tell me a bit about, um, you know, sort of a bit about Verde Group and the, and the work that you do there and, and how, um, and, and sort of where that data comes from, like how, what are you bringing to the fore to know, uh, to kind of know these trends? I mean, as you said, sort of easier said than done, but so none of these are like, oh my gosh, consumers care about X, but, but you also see every day where, the, where many organizations are letting their consumers down and it has an impact on their business, yeah. Yeah, so a couple of things. So first of all, Verde Group's business is really all about helping organizations prioritize where they need to invest for maximum ROI. So what does that all mean? That means that although we measure and we help our clients measure and manage customer experience, we're all about the money. We follow the money. So to what extent does a particular experience you know, translate to either uh, growth in revenue or revenue erosion? And I think that's really important for organizations to understand that when you go out and you get customer feedback, it's not about putting bigger smiles on customers' faces. It's about connecting that experience with their desire, their willingness to buy more from you, to continue buying from you, to recommend and refer your product to others. So that critical connection is what we help organizations do. I mean, no matter how big and successful you are as an organization, you have limited funds to invest to fix what's broken. So we help organizations prioritize where they should fix for maximum ROI. So what does that mean? That means that we go to market for our clients with a very purposeful and deliberate interrogation of customer problems. So you're thinking, well, that's not sexy. Like, why would you go out and just focus on pain and friction and problems? And the reason we do that is because we know that dissatisfaction is a very powerful predictive, uh, predictor of market behavior. So when customers have problems, they will stop doing business with you. Understanding which problems they have and more importantly, the individual contribution of specific problems on that negative market behavior is the most critical uh, sort of discovery for an organization. And there's money to be made. If you can know where your problems are that hurt you economically, then not only can you rectify them, but also their understanding problems is a tremendous source of innovation. And I think that's where there's a lot of focus right now. Big buzzword in the boardroom, innovate, digitally transform our businesses. You know, th these are the words that we hear our clients say time and time again. And yet at the end of the day, all customers want is a frictionless experience, a consistent experience. You know, do what you say you're going to do. Uh, fulfill your value proposition. And, uh, and that's what we help our clients do. So where does that data come from? So two places. Not only do we interrogate our clients' customers, and we work across a broad range of verticals, financial services, manufacturing, aerospace, transportation, um, you know, pharmaceutical and healthcare. So we cover a broad range of industries, but also we have a very special focus in retail, retail and the consumer side, because we partner with the, um, the Baker Retailing Center at the Wharton School of Business. And for the last 15 years, we've gone to market with, um, you know, market studies to try to discover something new in the customer experience for retailers. And so a lot of our studies have been published 
um, you know, in major news outlets and publications like Harper Business Review and Forbes and Fortune. And so we always like to sharpen our axe and discover new things. And the last study that we did was trying to uncover what delivers wow experience, because I guess everyone was tired of the pandemic and tired of bad news and you know, businesses closing down and suffering financially. So we try to give some light to a really dark space that a lot of businesses have been in. And Paula, do you find that when you dig into how consumers are feeling about brands, that a lot of the data is there, like they have ratings and reviews or they have consumer feedback and they're just not listening or reading it or consuming it? Or are you also just finding new sources of data that they might not have known about? That's a phenomenal question. So there is no question. There is more data out there than most organizations can consume. So problem number one is a lot of the data that's available is not coalesced in a way that makes it consumable. More importantly, in a way that makes it actionable. And absolutely, most importantly, in a way that helps organizations direct resources to highest return activities. And I think that's that's where there's failing. So data, no shortage uh, of structured and unstructured data. It's everywhere. But is it, is it you know, merchandised in a way that, that makes it understandable or what I call consumable, you know? And does it direct business strategy? And that's the gap. We have so much information. We have very little insight. Uh, I hear that a lot. In fact, it's a, you know, data insights manager, like, all they are is really data analysis people, but insights that drive action, um, I'd say that's a superpower. <laughs> you know? and many organizations lack enough of that. And where do you find is like the, the richest form of, of insight from the consumer? Like if you could pick one, where would you say that the, the insight you're getting from their data would be most impactful? Totally depends on the business. So the the first question that a business would ask is, what is the transaction frequency for our business? So for example, we have a PNC client. And if you can imagine property and casualty insurance as a consumer, how often are you interacting with that company? Uh, maybe renewals. And maybe if you have a claim, God forbid, you have an accident or there's an insurance claim on your home. But aside from those major events, where's the data coming from? Where's the data coming from, from for that organization to be able to you know, understand you as a customer? So that's, that's a great example. And, and it's not like insurance companies are big on social, right? I was like, oh yeah, let's just tweet about you know, our premiums. You know, it's just not a business that has an abundance of customer insight. So those organizations will need to be very purposeful uh, and deliberate in how they go out to market to collect it. So traditional customer surveys would be a good form of data, a good source of data for them, provided that those surveys are, you know, well-executed, um, timed, good questions, and that's a whole science I won't get into. And then there are organizations that have an abundance of customer data because customers are transacting on a high-frequent you know, basis, those, you know, 
quick service restaurants or, you know, high frequency retail like Walmart and, you know, Amazon, they have more data than you can imagine. And, and the best source for them would be behavioral data, transaction data, like what are customers actually doing? Uh, what are they buying? What's their, you know, um, trip frequency, basket size, um, what's in their basket? Uh, and then what do we know about that consumer uh, you know, age, life stage, et cetera. So those organizations typically have a lot of that data. And that's what we call, you know, sort of structured data. And then there's this whole unstructured noise, you know, and that's social. Uh, are there reviews out there? People telling stories? What about when they call into a call center and they talk to a rep or they talk to a salesperson? Uh, if it's a B2B uh, business, there's a sales rep going out on a sales call and he's meeting with the customer, where's that data going? Is it going into a CRM system? Has that data coalesced with call center data, transaction data, order data, you know, all of that. So depends on the business the, um, and the velocity of transactions and interactions that customers have with an organization. That's where the answer will be. Where's the richest source of data for them? But it's not so much where's that data coming from, it's how is it being merchandised? How is it being you know, sent up to the, to the rest of the organization, to other business unit leaders? And how are they coming together to make decisions uh, as a team? And that's, that's where you get into you know, elite athletes versus you know, just <laughs> pro college, I guess. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to dig into, into that, Paula, sort of how... Uh, because so so often, you know, resources are limited. You have to kind of choose where you're going to place your bets uh, to, as as you said, reduce the friction in the consumer experience. And and you really focus that prioritization around calculating that financial risk of that friction. And so, can you talk us through kind of the methodology that you use to to calculate that risk? And and love to hear, you know, obviously to the extent, you know, no need to mention firm names or anything like that, but particularly in the, you know, manufacturing or retail space, sort of where you've seen that be successful. Sure. So the methodology that we deploy is we use traditional market research methods, um, both qualitative and quantitative research to interrogate on the customer experience, the cradle to grave journey, uh, the onboarding of a customer right through to service and support post purchase post-transaction. So we do that by understanding what we call the moments of truth. What are all the different interactions where customers uh, have an opportunity to, to have an opinion about the organization? So we call that the cycle of service. You know, what is the entire cycle of service? And, and usually there's three parts of that cycle. There's your core product and service. What is it? Your wireless provider, you're a bank, you're an insurance company, you're a retailer. What is the business that you're in? What is the core service that you provide to customers? And what are all the experiences that the customer has in receiving and using that core service? Then there's what we call the middle ring of experiences. And those are what we call the peripheral experiences. And those are you know, marketing, all the support systems, you know, sales and customer care all the support systems that the company relies on to bring that core product and service to market. There's experiences around that and we will evaluate those experiences. And then the third level, 
is what we call the relationship ring. And those are the things that are less, um, you know, transactional, less observable and more emotional. And those are the trust that the customer has, the belief that they feel valued by that company for their business, for their tenure. Um, so all of those, those are also experiences because they're things that a company can do to create trust, to build you know, recognition and reward customers for that loyalty. So that's the outer ring. So when we collect and interrogate on those experiences, we do that in a binary fashion. We simply want to know whether a customer had an experience or not. Did this happen to you? Did you get greeted when you walked into the store? Uh, did you receive an invoice that was accurate or inaccurate? So it's the absence or presence of key experiences that we survey against. So that's the essence of our methodology. And then we link all of those experiences to market behavior, negative market behavior. And the reason why we choose negative market behavior is because problem experiences are highly predictive of negative market action. So when a customer has a friction, when a customer experiences pain, experiences a problem, an issue, that creates an emotional sort of event, an attitude that then leads to some sort of market event. And a non-market event is an event. So not buying from you again is a calculatable sort of um, you know, event that we, can, that we can address. So what Verde Group does in this methodology is understands the relationship between the things that happen to your customer and what they're going to do as a result. And all the stuff in the middle, we kind of ignore, which is the attitude, the cognitive expression of those experiences. We kind of don't measure because we don't need to, because they're not actionable. If you're measuring a customer's attitude, you know, you're wasting your time because an attitude is something that happened after the experience. And you can't change an attitude unless you understand the experience that created it. So companies can change experiences, and that's what we help our clients do. So Paula, to bring this to life for our audience, do you have any example case studies or just specific examples where you can bring this to life? So this was a, um, a service organization. So they provide, in this organization, shop towels, uniforms to small businesses like restaurants, uh, empl any employer that requires uniforms, and soap dispensers in their bathrooms. So this was the company. This was the service that they provided. They had 380 locations across the United States and they were losing business. So they had a significant, profound customer retention issue. And they measured that because customers weren't renewing their contracts. And a lot of these customers were small mom and pop shops. And this business did business very in, in a very old fashioned way. So the truck driver for this company would be the person not only would deliver the new fresh, clean uniforms and shop towels, but they would also collect the money for that account from the owner operator. So maybe it's a, you know, Ma's pancake house and she'd write the check and, you know, collect it. So this service rep, this driver was everything for this business. And the sacred cow in this company was that the service reps make or break our business. Without them, you know, we have everything. So they're losing money and yet they know that the service reps are everything. So clearly there must be something wrong with that model because they're losing business. 
So when we went to this organization, the CEO, I'll never forget, I said to him, well, Steve, I need to do a study. We need to survey, you know, your customers. And he's like, you're wasting your time. We don't want another survey because we survey our customers all the time and they love us. We've got boardrooms and our wall is filled with with all these charts that show that our NPS scores are through the roof. Everyone loves us, but we're not making money. We're losing money. So please don't tell me that you need to survey my customers because I already know they love us. That doesn't tell me why we're losing money. So that's the case study. So I said, you have to trust me because the, first of all, you're not asking your customers about their experience. You're just asking them how much do they love you? And love does not equate to business. See, satisfied customers can still defect. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yep, it's true. So he's like, okay, I'll, I'll take the leap of faith, go out and survey my customers in your way. And our way was to interrogate on problems. And it turns out they had tons of problems and they had nothing to do with the service rep. The, the sacred cow was right and wrong. So sacred cow are those mystical beliefs that executives have about their business. And then they're proven wrong when you really talk to their customers. Yeah. So it was true that their service reps were really good. They were good at delivering service, etc. They weren't the reason why their customers were buying from them. So one of the biggest ahas, and this happened in the boardroom, were presenting the findings that their number one market damage problem were the terms of their contract. They were making their customers sign these five-year contracts and they had no teeth. So the customer could opt out of that contract anytime. So the customers hated the term that was one of the biggest problems of their service contracts. It's like, if you just sign a one year, like we'd be happier, but we don't want to sign a five year. And so we just don't sign them anymore. And that became, and so what, what the CEO was thinking he was doing by creating a captive climate, captive audience by, you know, making customers sign these long contracts, it was doing the opposite. It was making them not sign. So in the boardroom, while we're presenting these findings, the CEO actually picks up the phone and speaks to legal and said, immediately change the term of the service contract. Uh, but there were a number of other items. And one was that the driver had so much to do when he was delivering and picking up that he wasn't doing that the quality checks on the uniforms weren't being done. So uniforms were being delivered with without buttons or with stains. And they were just servicing way too many clients and trying to be, you know, accounts receivable and delivery and customer service that they weren't taking care of the quality of their garments, the quality of the product that they were delivering to these shops. And so we pilot tested a bunch of recommendations, but more importantly, we pilot tested those high risk issues, service contract, poor quality control system in place to ensure that customers were getting better quality products, uh, you know, cleaned uniforms, et cetera. And they had, and they, we tested it on a location that had the highest customer defection rate, you know, 33%. They were losing business like wow. crazy. And they went from a 33% business loss to zero business loss in 10 months. And I will remember at the end of that, that program, 
the CEO sat me down. He said, you, you priced this project all wrong. You should have done a contingency pricing. We got <laughs> a percentage of the lift. And that company did do incredibly well. They were able to recover their losses and they eventually sold to a much bigger company at a very pretty penny uh, as a result of their quality control that they put in place. So that would be an example for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting, Paula, because I, recently I, I recorded a podcast with Fred Reicheld, who was the creator of the NPS score yep. uh, at Bain and, and created the system. And he, he just came out with a new book called Winning on Purpose. And it would kind of break his heart to hear sort of the misuse of NPS as a, as a kind of a, oh, look, someone, you know, might be willing to refer us. And unless you dig, uh, and unless you really have your listening posts out on that, it can be sort of a misuse of that NPS can kind of paper over a lot of problems unless you're using it in the right way. Fred's whole new book is about sort of that process of how you can make sure that it's actually a weapon for, for good and not for evil. Right. And yeah. earned revenue is his new metric, right? Yes. He's yes. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's a really cool book to read. I recommend it to, to your, uh, to our listeners. Um, so I love that, that story. How about take us into the retail world? Yeah, the retail one. This is a wonderful one. So this organization, um, still exists today. They are a, uh, very high-end brand, well, not high-end, but, um, global brand, uh, women's apparel. And I won't say too much more detail on that, but very specialty retailer. And, uh, they, the, the what was interesting about this organization is they have um, this allure with their brand. You know, it's got very positive, very it's a very aspirational brand for young women. And so going to market with a study that basically, you know, challenges the sort of appeal of that brand was was something that was hard, but their COO was a very forward-thinking leader and said, we need to do a study. We need to understand where our growth potential is and where there's risk in our business because we're rolling out in international, you know, stores everywhere. So one of the, and they pride themselves in their quality, their quality of their garments. That's what they, you know, their quality, the, the, the beauty uh, of their products. And one of their number one um, problems was, and the CEO, uh, I'll never forget her reaction, but the number one problem was the quality of the product was hurting them. Now, it wasn't a problem that a lot of customers were necessarily you know, experiencing, but those that did, uh, so low frequency from problem, but high damage impact. And that's that's what we try to uncover. So not all problems are created equal in their ability to create risk or financial risk. There could be some problems that happen very infrequently, yet create tremendous collateral damage to that brand. And this was a perfect example. So she says, there is absolutely no way that we have a quality problem with our product, with our garments. We source our material locally in the US, nothing's from offshore. Our quality is top notch. And then when we dug deeper, there are two things about quality. There's actual and perceived. So the way this retailer was merchandising their product definitely 
gave the impression to consumers that it was of low quality. Number one, the product was squished on the racks, okay? And uh, they had the two-for-one sales almost all the time where they would put you know, garments in a giant bin when you walk into the store and it's like two for one and 99 cents for this. And that. so they would constantly discount their product and the way they shelved it was just too compressed, not enough room. And also the handling of the garments in the store was done in a way where a lot of customers would find dirty garments, but they were trying on, you know, something with lipstick on it. And so all of a sudden, the perception of poor quality, when you're always discounting your product, it's always like thrown into a bin and not properly merchandised or properly, you know, um, shelved, gave the impression that poor quality. And so it immediately, and they would have never known this ever, 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 none of their studies ever told them that hey, let's fix the merchandising of our product, or maybe we should stop with the two for one sales. And maybe we should stop with the impulse towers by the cashier because customers couldn't even see where the line was. So all of these non-intuitive issues came to light and they were able to make some incredible immediate low cost changes that had a profound positive impact on their business. This study, to give you an example, was done 15 years ago. And a lot of the leadership team is still there. And they will say, okay, this was a study that transformed our business. And we will never forget how we need to look at our customer experience really differently. And just, you know, when you hear about customer complaints, you can often get distracted and think that you got to fix those problems that customers are screaming about. But often problems that hurt you the most are what we call the silent killers. Those issues that you don't hear about customers just don't uh, they don't shop there anymore. They leave line abandonment was a huge issue that we discovered. You have long lineups and customers are abandoning their garments, be, you know, in the line and leaving the store. And they said, no, that's not true. You, so we didn't, we don't believe it. So they hired a consulting firm to come into their stores and actually observe with cameras, actually observe customers in line to see if they could see that behavior because they didn't believe the study. So, so we were on the phone with a consulting firm. And they're like, yeah, no, we hardly saw any line abandonment from the customers. And we, uh, and I'm thinking, do you know what line abandonment is? It's not physically waiting in line to abandon a purchase. It's seeing that there's a long lineup and not even getting in line and leaving your purchase. That's line abandonment. And they weren't counting that. What? Happens to me what? at every pharmacy I go to. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you don't have to be in line to abandon it. You just have to look at the line and see that it's so long and abandon the store. And throw the clothes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. I, like the, I like the example about like the squished clothing. I always say the stores with the least amount of clothes are the most expensive stores because it's just the way that they're presented. But I, I really like that example specifically because in the brand's mind, they were sitting and planning out how consumers were shopping and what they thought was happening in kind of like a bubble. And they weren't really understanding what was actually happening with happening with the consumer. And I think we find that digitally now as well, where it's like, oh, we have really great content. We're talking about our brand. We're telling our story. But in reality, 
you're not really understanding how the consumer is interpreting that or the context that you're giving them. And so you really need to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer in order to, to do that, which I think that was a great example of. Yeah, no, for sure. So Paula, those are really, really helpful and and kind of bring the imagination to life, I think. And to, to close, you know, in the last few minutes that we have left here, so so for so many of our listeners, it, the the consumer experience now is is really uh, so has so many touch points involved in it, way more than they used to, um, in store and and digital, and then hybrid. It's sort of that dreaded word omni-channel or whatever we're using these days. Uh, So as you think about 2022 and 2023, where are the places in the omni-channel experience that, you know, sort of based on your research represent the areas of kind of greatest opportunity or impact for leaders to be thinking about now? Yeah, for... From the research that we do and the clients that we work with, I'd say that the biggest points of failure tend to be in the connectors, in the the connection between one channel versus another. And what a lot of organizations fail to you know think about is that, and actually I should tell you that retailers are now moving away from omni-channel and deciding that, you know, we've got a digital and we've got an in-store and the two shall never meet. Oh my gosh. Don't, please don't tell me that. Yeah. No, that's backwards. (laughs) It's, it's happening. What do they think their consumers doing when they're in the aisle and they pull their phone out and they're looking at, wow. Exactly. Right. And so, so I think the biggest point of failure is that the, those connectors, the connector between those, those various channels And the fact that, unfortunately, we still have head of digital and head of store. And that's a problem, you know, it because sometimes they're not talking and they're not understanding that that customer is the same customer that's moving in and out of those channels. And when you think digitally, you're not thinking store. And I think we need to think differently. We need to hire and you know, hire talent that's different in our organizations, not hire, oh, head of digital and head of store operations. And that's what we're still doing. And I think that's, we're designing points of failure in our business by how we hire you know, executives and leadership to run our different you know, business, uh, lines of business. We still count revenue. Oh, this was funny. I was talking to a retailer. This was hilarious. Now, like how much money do you make in your stores versus online? And they're like, we don't know. We can't differentiate because when a customer orders a product online, they are shipping it from a store and it's counting it as the store revenue, but it was actually an online order. So they're unable to tell whether that order was originating from an in-store shopper or originating from an online order that came from Eastern Canada, but shipped from a Vancouver store, because that's where the store had it. So you get all these complexities. And all of a sudden, you're not really able to know what's going on in your business. And where's the traffic? And where's the experience happening? And how is that experience? And then the Vancouver customer who's shopping for their canoe or kayak in that BC location, doesn't have it because they ship them all to that customer in the East Coast. And so we're seeing some of these fundamental problems happening yeah. all the time. And you would think, what? Haven't we moved beyond those things? And so I'd say that there's still a lot of infancy in recognizing 
those connections between the different channels. That's number one to answer your question. Like where's, you know, looking at the 2022, it's like there's still so much infancy in the digital slash in-store experience. And COVID made that murkier because a lot of brick and mortar retailers did, that didn't have a very strong digital presence were forced to get digital very quickly and they failed. They failed right. miserably and they hurt their brand, unfortunately. Well, you know, time and time again throughout this podcast, I've heard you say, and when I spoke to the CEO, the COO, like you're clearly making it, making it um, crystal clear that it's, these are, this is leadership that has to happen at the C-level to, to know that these questions that you're asking are worth asking. Yes. That Because that, it may be that, I mean, I, I, you can see someone making a case for, oh, no, let's keep them separate because it's just too much. But if you can't, if you don't fashion those questions that are asked across those two silos of the consumer to really get these data points that can help you drive towards this, you know, financial impact analysis, then that will go on for another year or two before you realize that you've you've lost to your competitors if, if you're yes. not asking those questions at the top. Yes, that, absolutely. Yeah, We call that uh, the illusion of progress when uh, you keep asking the same questions and really, you know, there's a lot of activity, you're measuring, you're managing, but really the fundamental changes aren't there. And so you go out and you, you research and your results aren't changing and you wonder like why? And it's like, just because you're busy doesn't mean you're moving ahead in the right direction. So anyways, yeah. Well, Paula, thank you so much. I mean, I love hearing the passion with which you work and also the, the specificity with your approach and knowing that being able to put these things into a financial context is often the greatest way to, to drive change. So thank you so much for, for coming and bringing these, these stories and this approach to our audience. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you, Paula. Thanks to Paula for joining us. Please share this episode with your friends and thanks as always for being part of our community.